Angela Saini, welcome to Fritanke Pod. Thank you. And welcome to Sweden, your first time, right? Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> That's wonderful. You have written a book in Swedish called Underlägsen, den misslyckade vetenskapen om kvinnan. First, tell us um, what what took you into this subject? Why did you want to write about it? Well, it's odd because I have an engineering background. So my undergraduate degree was in engineering. My master's was in engineering. And for most of my career, I've done engineering stories, you know, physical sciences, technology. Um, Human behavior and human biology is something I didn't really think about until after my son was born. And I was asked to do more stories on this topic for whatever reason. I don't know. Um, And one of the stories I was asked to do was on the menopause. So... An editor at a newspaper said, do anything about the menopause, any kind of story. And it's not something I have any direct experience of yet. And I didn't really know that much about it. Mm. But it just so happened at the same time that I was asked to write it, a paper was published in Canada by a trio of male scientists at McMaster, um, suggesting that the reason, evolutionary reason why women um, have the menopause now is because in our evolutionary history, so deep time um older men did not find older women attractive so they didn't need to be fertile so they lost their fertility mm-hmm. and um it was criticized when it came out not not just because it's sexist but because you know it didn't have a very good framework for or mechanism for how that could have happened but Um, There was another really good hypothesis to explain the menopause that already existed that had lots of work behind it, Um, much of it done by women, but by men as well, called the grandmother hypothesis. And this said something completely different. It said that the reason we live so long into our infertile years that we don't die when we lose our fertility like most other species is because grandmothers are so vital to the survival of their grandchildren. Uh Um, You know, that they really contribute work-wise to the survival of their families. And there's a really good mechanism for that and there's loads of research. And it just intrigued me that um, here we have a theory put forward by a group of men that, uh, you know, it's patriarchs responsible for the female menopause. And then there's this other theory Um, worked on by men, I have to say. The original idea came from a man, but, you know, a lot of the work since then has been done by women Mm. um, that says something completely different. And if science were completely unbiased, if it were completely objective, then why would you get this gender split over a question like this? And that really intrigued me because then what does that say about how science is done, what research can tell us? And can we... You know, what else about women have we been told that we may not, that may, you know, depend on the gender of the researcher? So that's when I started looking into this question. And um, it turned out to be Can I ask you first, this, this theory about the, this menopause, yeah. has it been sort of settled which one is right today? I think in evol- when it comes to evolution, nothing is really settled mm, okay. because we don't have all the data that we need. We can't go back in time and see what happened. So really, these are just theories. And sometimes it's a matter of belief. You know, which mm. theory do you want to believe mm. or which theory are you convinced by? And um, But they can have different again, evidence base. 
I mean, some are better evidence based yeah. than others. Yeah, and the grandmother hypothesis at the moment has a better evidence base okay. by quite a long margin. Um, but again, that's interesting. You know, why did why then did these guys come along and come up with something so radically different when a very well evidenced theory exists and their evidence their theory has such little evidence? That's interesting. Um, so you know, it's about. I mean, the book is about not just about what does science really tell us about women, but how is science done? You know, how is this body of work created mm. and what can it really tell us about ourselves? It's actually interesting when you talk about this grandmother theory because I have some friends from Bangladesh who are coming to Sweden now as refugees. Mm. And uh, I was discussing uh, bringing up kids with them. And uh, once I asked... Uh, uh, this this girl, if a kid gets hurt in some way, does does he or she run to his mother or father? Mm. And she said, none. They run to their grandmother. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Because that's how how it is in the big families. There. Yeah, which is how we lived for <laughs> most of yeah. most of the past. We lived in big communal societies, yeah. where our grandparents and our relatives, aunts, uncles, everyone, you know, yeah. even unrelated people, would be very involved in the raising of children. And certainly in my life. My mother-in-law has been crucial in our family in looking after my son, allowing mm. me to go back to work. You know, if she wasn't there, I don't think I would have been able to. Uh -huh. So she, I wouldn't say the survival of our family hinged on it, but certainly the success did. Yeah. How old is your son? He's four. Four. Yeah. You have one. Uh, yeah. yeah. I have a son as well who's eight. So it's it's exciting because when you when you become a parent, obviously you start to think about these mechanisms more. Probably was yeah, that do. also contributing to your attention to these issues when you wrote the book? Yeah, my son was two when this was written. I started thinking about it fairly soon after he was born, and certainly raising a child um, of any gender does make you think more carefully about the way society feeds these ideas about gender. To them, mm. so I like to think. I mean, I live in a very liberal part of North London, and I like to think that I raise him in a very gender-neutral way. That I don't instill him with stereotypes, but he still gets them. You know, he still has. He still comes home and tells me, "Mummy, I'm building a fort, and it's not for girls. It's just for boys." Mm. Or you know, these ideas that he's picked up from school or from cartoons. You know, from wider popular culture, and they're everywhere. I think you, you have a very important point here that as a parent, you realize that you have not very much influence on these issues <laughs> because it comes from everywhere else, from friends and school and, you know. So I had this memory when my, my son wanted to buy some headset for his iPad and we went to, into a store and you could choose between a blue and a pink one. And he actually chose the pink one. I said, fine, we, we have... And even, even though there was a picture of a boy on the blue one, on the plastic around it, and a girl on the other one, but he took the pink one. And when we came home a few days later, his cousin, who was a 12-year-old girl, came over and said, why have you bought girls' headphones? <laughs> and then he didn't want to use them. I know. You know it's, it's, so very, very similar thing happened to me with my son yeah. when he picked a pink hat. <laughs> and the lady at the counter, when we went to pay for it, said, are you sure you want the pink hat? Is that the one you want? Yeah. You know, this kind of undermining of yeah. choices. And then we're surprised when age seven or eight, girls love pink and sparkly things mm. and boys like blue things. Well, think about the reasons for mm. that. You know, their choices have been undermined yeah. if they don't conform with the gender stereotypes. And if they do happen to conform, then they're celebrated, they're encouraged. And that happens in every 
aspect of life when it comes to gender. So it's not just about toy choice or colour. Mm. It's about what's appropriate for you to do, what's exactly. appropriate about how you behave. And I think one thing that has become very clear in the sciences within biology is just how great an impact that upbringing, that social element, which sometimes gets overlooked in biology. You know, biology is biology. It's mm. about data, who we are, are What's our nature? Mm. You know, everything else is kind of peripheral. But actually, this is central to the question of human behavior, yeah. and it always has been. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I went into a, a store selling children's clothes once, and, and they were obviously separated in boys and girls' clothes. And I actually asked them in the store, why don't you mix this and just let parents choose what they like? And they gave me a very rational answer. They said, first, we sell less if we do that. And mm. twi uh, second, uh, they take much more of our time because they ask us all the time. <laughs> which, one, I mean, which one is the boys one and which one is yeah, the girls yeah. one? When girls and boys look pretty much the same up <laughs> yeah, until puberty, know. you know, there's hardly know. any difference. Yeah, I know. It surprises me because we ha these ideas are so fixed firmly yeah. in our head that these ki kids are different. They're just kids. In fact, I read some research recently that said that... so. So before puberty, obviously, boys and girls have the same voices. Their voice equipment mm. is identical. But um, this research showed that young girls had a higher pitched voice, higher tone, because, possibly because, they heard their mothers, they heard other women. Mm. The women have higher voices, and so they expected they should do too. Uh -huh. So they kind of unconsciously mimicked that, and so their voices sounded higher. There's nothing biological about it. That's you really know, interesting. They've you know, they've kind of absorbed that from the culture around them. But tell me, did you did you discover any behaviors or emotions or whatever in yourself as a mother uh, that you didn't expect to happen before you became a mother? I mean, that you would think would not happen because you have a very gender neutral attitude. Do you understand what I mean? So you mean conforming to gender stereotypes? Yes. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, well, I was, I wanted a child very much. So in that sense, the kind of love I felt for him, I could have expected, mm. I think. Um, I mean, I have to, I, at this point, I have to say, I grew up in a very kind of egalitarian household. My mum and dad split everything. You know, my dad took care of us. He did the cooking, did the cleaning. And in fact, since they retired, my dad does the housework and my mum started a new career. Mm -hmm. So... This idea of gender roles when it came to childcare didn't really exist in my head. What surprised me, I think, is that the rest of the world didn't think that way, that somehow the burden kept falling on me, you know, to figure out childcare, to sort out my career, to adjust, that I had to be the one to make the sacrifices, to do the adjustment around this new arrival. And um, that was difficult. And I think a lot of women face that and it's made it made me far more acutely aware of just how important the childcare question is when it comes to gender inequality mm, mm, i think you're right okay so tell me what what i mean in your book what would you highlight as the the big myths that science has given us about gender differences well i think First of all, science, I don't think, has any firm conclusions when it comes to sex difference. Mm -hmm. If there is one conclusion I can make, it's that um, there is nothing in biology with the data that we have that can go to explain all the gender inequality we see in society. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the gross inequality we see out there in terms of pay gaps, in terms of 
uh, representation in different industries cannot be explained by biology. There must be a social influence there. Just how much of it it is, that I think isn't known. Mm. We are so complex as a species. We are so um, different depending on culture and time and place um, that almost it becomes impossible to understand our true nature because I think nature and nurture in this sense are completely intertwined. You know, we are products of biological products of our upbringing. So, for example, if you give a child a mechanical toy to play with when they're young, their brain will develop to become better at those mechanical Mm -hmm. skills. So a social input creates a biological effect. And if you think of the many, many different ways in which we treat boys and girls differently, and then we see such differences out there in the real world, is that any surprise Mm. when we treat kids so differently and adults so differently as we're growing up? Of course, our brains are going to reflect that. Of course, our behavior is going to reflect that. So the job of biology to try, try and distill past all of that, Mm. try and get to the root of things, is almost um, impossible. But what we can see from psychological studies, from cognitive studies, is that there are very little psychological differences there, even if there are behavioural differences. But are there any cognitive differences? In IQ, average IQ of men and women is the same. And we've known that for 100 years. But, that surprises some people. Yeah, yeah. but is, is, isn't it the case that, what you call that in English, the, the curve? The bell curve. The yeah. bell curve. It's wider for men? More idiots well, and more genius? <laughs> this, is, this is a claim that's been made. Again, we don't have wonderful data on okay. this. But yeah, it's a claim that's been made. And I address this in the book. This idea that men show more variation, more variance at the extremes. And certainly on the bottom end, we have a mechanism for this. So Mm. men, um, because they have one X chromosome, whereas women have two, that second X chromosome guards women against, on average, against uh, certain genetic diseases and genetically linked X-linked mental retardation is one of them. Ah, so at the mm. bottom, we do actually yeah. see that mechanism. This is very well. interesting. The, the, I learned about this from the Swedish biologist Svante Pebo. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, we published his book, and and uh, he told yeah. me once that uh, that men are are actually much more vulnerable when it comes to genetics because they only have one copy of the X chromosome. Mm-hmm. So any kind of mutations or, or something going wrong there, they have no back- backup, so to yeah. speak. But women have that. But it's only on the X chromosome. And yeah. we have many other chromosomes that we have in common. Yeah. So it's just on this one thing. So we're not profoundly different. But there are certain genetic diseases to which men um, have more susceptibility because of this weakness. Um, but then again, women... Um, because we have these kind of heightened immune systems because we give birth and you know if you think about it a baby is a foreign body inside you so you have to have an immune system that can deal with that um we are more um susceptible to autoimmune diseases yeah um like arthritis so you know it's a it's give or take okay (laughs) but again the differences are not profound you know we are not completely different we're not completely the same but we're not completely different either i see um, uh, but, f- for example, I, I, I read somewhere that uh, Asperger and autism, for example, are much more common w- at me- with men than women, like yeah. four times more common. Well, this is um, a matter of debate because okay. I think 
Um, historically, yes, there have been far more autism diagnoses in men, but that's be- partly possibly because for a long time it was framed as a male disease. So when women presented with it, they weren't necessarily diagnosed. And diagnosis rates in women have gone up since we've realised that that might have been a factor. So... Um, it's possible that, again, that difference is not as big as it seems. Because I know of this uh, British researcher, Simon Baron-Cohen. He's yeah. researching that, isn't he? Yeah, and I address uh, his research in my book. So yeah, I look at um, what you say quite in your deeply um, this question of, is it innate? Now, this is what it comes down to. Are we born this way or do we develop this way? Mm-hmm. And... Many years ago, or well, fairly recently, he did an experiment. A PhD student in his lab carried it out. And what she did was she went into a maternity hospital and she showed newborn babies. So this really gets the heart of the matter then because mm. they're not socialised yet. No. Um, pictures of a face and pictures and a mobile made out of a picture of her face. So one's a kind of empathic object, one's a kind of system object. Mm. One represents a female brain, one represents a male brain. And what they found was that there was a statistical difference in how children looked. So the girls tended to look at the face and the boys tended to look at the mobile. It wasn't a huge difference, but it was there. And this was groundbreaking because, to be honest, nobody had seen gendered behaviour until the age of two. Mm -hmm. And if you think of all the gendered input we have until the age of two, it's quite profound. So. It was groundbreaking. It was cited so many times. It was um, it was used to defend Larry Summers, Harvard oh, University yeah. president, yeah. when he said that women are uh, underrepresented in at the peak of science because possibly because of biology. So I tracked down the researcher who did this experiment, and uh, she now lives in California. She left the lab soon afterwards. And what she told me was that it was kind of like a science fair experiment. You know, when she went in... Um, to the to the maternity hospital and this really is the killer thing here she knew the sexes of some of the babies uh-huh. she couldn't help but know because it's a maternity hospital you know mm. there are names there are pink balloons there are blue balloons um, and so when she was doing the experiment she knew that which means it wasn't blind which yeah, really prejudices yeah. it yeah. and if we if you think about a newborn baby and how difficult it is to know what they're thinking or where they're looking mm. or, you know, anything. I'm not even sure a newborn baby can see very clearly. But anyway, um, if you think of all the different ways in which she could have slightly interpreted that yeah, this kid was looking in a certain direction. But haven't they been able a, to replicate that experiment? No, it hasn't been replicated. So the other interesting thing was she told me that... So this experiment formed part of her PhD thesis. When she went to defend it, she failed... Uh-huh. And they had to get in a new set of reviewers to get her to pass. So I asked Simon Baron Cohen about this. You know, is this good science, given all these mm. limitations here? And he said, yes, the only problem with it is it hasn't been replicated. And I'm not sure that's good enough, mm. you know, frankly, for something that is saying something so profound that has been used not just within science but within the public domain to justify this idea that gen- that you know sex differences are innate at birth profound behavioral sex mm. differences are innate at birth you need more than that yeah i see that's very interesting why hasn't it been replicated i don't know it's, i don't know no yeah. Because it should be fairly easy to do that, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to get access to maternity wards. So that okay. might be one aspect of it. But again, much research has been done on children. We haven't seen any differences before the age of two. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. Um, I'm thinking another example. I'm I'm quite <clears throat> into chess, and I my son plays a lot of chess, and I see very clearly that uh, boys are so overrepresented in in chess. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally think when it comes to amateur players that it's completely a social construct because of many reasons. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe if it, if it is the case that Aspergers is very overrepresented on males. That could explain why the the world chess master uh, mm. most likely will be male because mm. they are almost always Aspergers. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, but then we have to pick apart all the different stages of that. Mm. You may well be right. I don't know. It's just yeah, we don't know. Of but um, first of all, is Aspergers overrepresented yeah, in male? We already know. know that there's a social reason why it has been underdiagnosed mm. in women, and that is changing. So that's point one. Point two, if women are underrepresented at the amateur level for social reasons, then they're going to be underrepresented at the professional levels because you become a professional after being an amateur. And I know myself, I was very good at chess when I was young. Ah. I went to chess club. It was all boys there and I felt intimidated and I didn't go ever again. You know, I just played at home. Um, So that has a big part to play in it. You know, you... To be a woman in that environment, you can't just be average or below average. You have to be the best because you have to feel that you have to stick it out. Um, So there are different, you know, I think the important thing here, I'm not saying that nature plays no role. I'm not saying that there are no differences. There may well be differences. Differences we have seen tend to be very small and much smaller than we expect them to be. But... More fundamentally, there are so many other explanations out there for the inequalities we see out there in the wider world. And we have to consider those. Because if we don't do that, then we're not really being good scientists. No, that's so true. That's so true. Uh, My son actually has a uh, chess trainer combined babysitter who is a (laughs) 15-year-old girl who actually is the best chess girl in Sweden up to year 22. She's the best, uh, the best female player in Sweden up to 22. Mm. And uh, I haven't got a chance whatsoever <laughs> when we play <laughs> with her. But uh, anyway, and, and I think that she's really important because she is yeah. becoming a role model for, for young girls yeah. to, in, in chess in Sweden. Yeah. So I completely agree with you. This role model thing is extremely important yeah. for kids, of course. And not just role models. You know, women have been... When you're in a male-dominated environment, and I know how that feels because I studied engineering. You know, mm. I was the only girl in the class. Mm-hmm. When I was at school, I was the only girl in a lot of my classes. And at that time, I absorbed, I think, unconsciously this idea that I was the only one because boys were better at this or they had some propensity Mm. for this. And it's only since writing Inferior, it's really made me question these assumptions that I had, that I grew up with, based on my experience, and force myself to ask, well, is it because of that or is it because of something else? Now... For example, in my when I was at school, I came top in all my classes. There were plenty of boys in my class who were below average, but they felt perfectly happy to go and do engineering degrees, yeah. even though they were below average. For a girl to go and do engineering, she feels she has to be well above average yeah. because she is entering a domain in which she is a minority, yeah. in which she has to prove herself. Mm. Um, and that's how I felt. Mm. I felt it wasn't good enough for me to be second or third or fifth or anywhere down there because there was no point then it was hard enough for me anyway as a female I had to be the best and that dynamic comes into play a lot when it comes to male-dominated industries and professions 
Um, another thing that I've been thinking of, and I don't know if this is the case, you, you have to tell me, but someone told me that, for example, uh, when you do certain cognitive tests on, on special cognitive abilities, even if you can find a difference in average between gender, male and women, male and female, the, um, uh, the, the average difference is bigger between left-handed and right-handed persons than between <laughs> men and women, which we, in certain cases someone told me. Yeah. Uh, and that's quite interesting, I think, because if that's true, which I don't know, uh, then actually the categorization in gender is not the most relevant categorization. Why, but why do we always categorize in gender when it's not the most relevant one? Well, we categorize in lots of different ways. I mean, I'm writing, my next book is on race, so I'm halfway through that, mm. and I'm looking at exactly these questions. Why do we categorize the way we do? Mm. Where did those categories come from? Now, the gender one is an obvious one, really, because, you know, in some ways, there, there are hard and fast dimorphic yeah. explanations for why we're different. You know, I can have a baby and you, you can't yeah, have a baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in that way, it's very easy to categorise and then from there draw inferences about different groups of people. Um, other categories are more ephemeral and more difficult. You know, we could categorise by height, for instance. Yeah. You know, there are lots, there are bazillion different ways in which people differ. Um, upper body strength or lower body strength or anything. You know, we can, we can pick anything really. But we pick the categories we do partly for biological reasons, mm. like I said, but sometimes for political reasons, you know. Yeah. We have nation states, we've drawn boundaries somewhere. Someone living in France is treated very differently from someone living in Spain, even though they may be very similar in every other respect. But this is this is what we do as humans. We can't help it in some way. Um, but we have to remember how arbitrary some of these categories are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I've been thinking about um, <clears throat> people who are very aware that we shouldn't categorize people according to race, for example. Mm. They can still be very blind for the gender categorization. For example, I don't know if it's common in England, but in Sweden it's very common that that women have these women dinners and, and men have these men dinners with mm -hmm. only men. And I can't understand that. I mean, if I have a dinner, I want to invite people who I find interesting, independent of, the, of their sex. Yeah. Why? But nobody seems to think <laughs> that's weird. Isn't that weird to have a well, dinner with only men? <laughs> interesting is, or, again, women. another category. What you find interesting is a category in itself, isn't it? <laughs> so you have to be cautious about that. True. Um, but... Yeah, you're right. I mean, I struggle with this because people say to me, we shouldn't have categories and we shouldn't think about men and women. We should think about things completely. We should think about ourselves as individuals. Mm -hmm. And I think scientifically they're right. Biologically, we are each a unique product of our environment, our experiences, our biology, everything. And I may have more in common with you than I do with another woman on the street. But... Um, These categories also have social meaning. Yeah. You know, why do women go on the women's march? It's yeah. because historically, yeah. for thousands of years, women as a group, they've been treated as a group and they've been disadvantaged as a group. So they have to fight for their rights as a group. Um, and until those groups stop having social meaning, then they won't necessarily stop having scientific meaning because those social meanings translate into biological meanings, if that makes sense. Yeah. So this is where kind of... Gender research, this is the front line of gender research, really. Understanding how social impacts affect biology. How the, the fact of me being a woman has affected my biology. Now, one very simple example is um, 
we look different. You know, you walk down the street, it's very easy to tell who's a man, who's a woman in most societies, not all societies. And part of the reason for that is not just because men and women have some obvious physical differences, but also because we style ourselves, we diet. If you're a man, you might bulk yourself up. If you're a woman, you'll make yourself thinner that emphasise, you know, these gender tropes that mm. fit into these gender categories. We wear certain clothes. So actually, you know, this isn't biological. This is social. Mm. The ways that we're making ourselves look different and feel different. But it has a biological effect. Mm. You know, you may have even higher body strength than you would normally because you might go to the gym mm. because men are expected to go to the gym and look bigger. I might have much weaker body strength than normal because I'm expected to be super thin mm. and, you know, waif-like because that's a beauty standard for women in mm. the society that I live in. So um, it's not clear cut, in other words. What about framing? I read somewhere that some of these cognitive tests are affected by framing. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Can, can, can you tell us about that? How, how is the research on that? Well, this is an issue in IQ, and this is um, an aspect I haven't got to yet. I'm still <laughs> working through my book, so I'm halfway. Um, but yes, how we test people and how we frame these tests and the context in which they're given can really affect the results. Mm. Um, I don't know if I'm in a position to say very much more, th more than that. No, but, but do you, you, know, do you find it in, in, in gender, I mean, cognitive tests on men and women? Well, the reason I didn't look at, I did look at, cognition and psychological differences only in as much as we know again and again and again there are very few cognitive and psychological differences between women so if we think about height for instance the average difference in many societies in the height between men and women is two standard deviations mm -hmm. now often psychological differences will either be zero or they will be in the order of a fraction of one standard deviation mm -hmm. so height is noticeable That kind of difference, a fraction of standard deviation, 0.1, 0.2, is not noticeable in everyday life. So mm. they really don't rise to that high level that we would expect from seeing how gender mm. unequal society is. So I think that's as much as we can say. We can't say that there are no differences. We don't really know the full span of differences or how they arise. But what we can say is that the differences cannot account for the, for the social inequality that we see fully. Mm. <clears throat> a researcher on intelligence at Karolinska Institute, I think it was, he, he told me that uh, the idea that if the bell curve is wider for men uh, and therefore there would be more geniuses and more idiots, uh, someone said to him that that might explain why there are more male professors of physics, for example, but it mm. shows that when you test the professors of physics, they mm. do not score on that super high end yeah. on IQ. So that's yeah. that does not explain it. Yeah. But then we reach for explanations for what we see around us. You know, Darwin did this. Yeah. Darwin looked at the world around him and assumed, and he wrote this in his book, this is where the title comes from, that women were intellectually inferior mm. because women weren't achieving as much as men. That was his argument. Mm. Now, this was Victorian Britain. Women didn't have the vote. They didn't have access to higher education. They often didn't have the same primary education as boys. Um, you know, they, in every way, their lives were constrained. So how were they supposed to be achieving as much as men? You know, we, it's easier to reach for the easy, simple, lazy yeah. biological explanation than it is to really dissect where this inequality comes from. And we do that with race. You know, we think about this way in race. Why do we not do this with gender? Mm. 
But yeah, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, and it's a bit saddening, I think, to, I mean, D Darwin is a hero in many ways, but I mean, his view on this, it's quite depressing. Yeah. Because it was so before his time when it came to mm. many other things. He's still my hero. I mean, he was a brilliant thinker mm. and um, he was so careful, you know, in the work that he did. He was painstaking. But I think what Darwin proves is that even the greatest thinkers can fall into this trap. Mm. And if he could, then clearly other people could, and the other people did, and other people still do. Yeah, of course. Uh, tell me, how, how, uh, when, when, was this book, when did this book come out in England? It came out um, in UK Commonwealth in the US in summer last year. Yeah. yeah. How has it been received? It's been amazing. I mean, I did expect some resistance to the ideas but I think politically the world has moved on to a point where actually many people think this way they're very receptive to them so that has been great what I have had is resistance on social media from people who haven't read it who just instinctively Typical. don't yeah. don't agree with it I mean one very interesting thing happened just last week um so around the same time that my book was released last summer there was um, a big story in the press about this memo written by a guy from Google. I don't know if you remember that. So there was a software engineer at Google who wrote oh, this, yeah, yeah. this notorious memo suggesting that the reason women were underrepresented in Silicon Valley is because um, of some biological propensity, maybe in their preferences or maybe in their abilities. Um, and I wrote a number of op-eds at the time and I got a lot of backlash from people who defended him. So a couple of months ago, he got sacked from his job and he's been on the speaking circuit since then. So a couple of months ago, I asked him, his name's James Damore, to read the book and he did. And last week he got back to me and he said he agreed with lots of it and we, we're planning to meet up to have a discussion Great. about it. And I think that's important because there is, of course, in these political times, a lot of hateful people out there who actually don't care about the facts, who don't want to know. They just have their views, they want the world to stay mm. as it is, or they want <clears> the world changed, whatever <clears> it is. And it doesn't matter to them really what you've got to say. But for those who are willing to engage, for those who want to have a debate, I'm there, you know? I'm ready to have that debate with them. I want to hear their perspective. I want to know what it, why it is that they think the ways, the ways that they do. And I want them to understand where I come from. And hopefully through that process maybe we can have some kind of dialectic maybe we can come to some agreement at some point and society will you know push forward rather than feeling like a clash <laughs> which is the way it does at the moment what do you <clears throat> what do you think about i remember many years ago i read uh, a thinker called manuel castells do you know yes yeah mm -hmm. he wrote about globalization and yeah. stuff and he said that if I remember correctly, that one reason why religious fundamentalism is growing so much in the world could be that women has come into power so much more than 400 years ago around the world, and the the the, the male dominating the dominating males need a new way to keep them down, and then they <laughs> and then they refer to the old religious yeah. scriptures because they know they can't use any rational arguments anymore, or at least the rational arguments are sort of failing. Yeah. And then you can invoke the religious scriptures mm. and say this is from God. What do you think about that idea? 
Well, I don't know what evidence there is for that, but it's a possibility in as much as what we do see these days is, and in fact it's always been there, this reaching for explanations, mm. for justifications to keep things the way they are. Now, a hundred years ago, people used to say women's brains are smaller than men, they are more stupid, and that's why they don't deserve the vote. Well, we proved that wasn't true and women got the vote. And then they said, well, women aren't as smart. You know, they don't show the high level of intellect, so we shouldn't admit them to universities. Well, they mm. got into universities. They got into the scientific academies. And now they say, now that, you know, women are becoming much better represented in the sciences and in industries generally, they say that, um, you know, it's about, if they're underrepresented, it's about preference, that they choose not to do it, even if they can, they choose not to do it. Well, the goalposts keep shifting, don't yeah. they? Yeah. <laughs> they keep moving all the time. Mm. And at some point, we're going to have to ask ourselves when things are finally equal. I'm not sure I'll live to see that. But when we, we do finally have this kind of dream egalitarian world, um, you know, what's your excuse now? Mm. What do you have for us now? And um, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, I didn't write inferior as a scientific argument for equality. I don't think equality is a scientific question. It's a political question. Mm. We as a society have decided we are all equal, irrespective of what the science says, irrespective of our capacities and mm. our abilities. And that is a mark of civilization that we've been able to do that and we you know, unite under that banner of equality. But where we have to worry and where I think this becomes a feminist book, not just a science book, is that there are so many people out there now saying equality is impossible because of biology. Well, actually, no, that's not what the biology says. And it may not have very strong arguments either way, but it certainly doesn't say that the equality that we see is somehow rooted in biology and that's why it's okay, it's somehow justified. And, you know, that's part of why, for me, inferior is ammunition against that very unscientific argument against equality. I see what you mean. Hmm. <clears throat> but, okay, we're going to end soon, but I want to ask you one more thing. Don't you... I mean, I at least, as a father of, of, a, for, of a boy, are a little bit worried about the, the sort of... the way boys are socialized today to be not reading very much, not mm -hmm. performing very much. I mean, girls perform much better in school. I mean, aren't there a risk that in that generation we will have a, a lot of illiterate boys who doesn't you know <laughs> can't get a job and they are they have more testosterone so they will be more dangerous <laughs> on the street <laughs> well testosterone doesn't necessarily make someone more dangerous okay <laughs> uh, but know. more aggressive no or, it's no? actually that's okay. another uh, misunderstanding okay. of testosterone it's a very common misunderstanding so I don't blame <laughs> you for it but we we often associate it with aggression actually Most aggressive people have lower testosterone really? levels amongst oh, men. Wonderful yeah. to clear that up now. <laughs> is that the case? <laughs> that I really is the case, didn't know yes. Um, uh, yeah, and studies have been done on that. Um, but yeah, I'm also the parent of a son. Yeah. And I don't want my son to lose out. But then, I, you know, I don't think that's an argument for maintaining male domination or male supremacy. But I do think equality, when we have it, is liberating for both sexes mm. because if your son wants the pink headphones then he can have the pink headphones mm. without anyone telling him he can't have the pink headphones that he's not he's kind of constrained in that choice if he wants to be 
whatever he wants to be, if he wants to be a more hands-on father or all the things stereotypically we've associated with women, he can do that. Mm. Um, and also the pressure gets lifted. I mean, I've seen myself, the pressure that men feel when they have children, especially in these economic times, these financial times, that they have to be the breadwinners, they have to bring home all the bacon, they have to you know, push and take care of everyone. Well, if that responsibility is shared between couples along with the responsibility for housework and childcare and everything else that women historically have had to do. Isn't that a good thing? That's a good thing course, for everyone. Of course. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you so much, Angela Saini, for coming. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>